One Track Run Talk podcast. Bringing the forefront of science and elite sport to you. Hi there, guys. My name is Fletch. I'm one of the coaches at One Track, and you've dialed into one of our Run Talk episodes. This one is with Professor Andrew Jones, who worked with Ilvika Choge in the lead up to the Breaking Two project with Nike, and also Paula Radcliffe way back when, when she broke the world record that stood then for 18 years. So, we speak to Andrew Jones about what it's like to be a champion. Not only a champion of a single event, but a champion of all time. What does it take to be the best of the best? So I'm not going to talk for too long in on the intro side of things, but I'm very excited to bring this to you. Uh, I find the scientists in this area a little bit of like heroes to me, so uh, I'm a little bit biased on that side of things. We get pretty much straight into it though, so without further, here's my interview with Professor Andrew Jones. Thankfully, um, there's a very nice uh, synopsis of you on the uh, University of Exeter website that I'm not going to read off because it's very long, um, but... There are very few people in the world that have kind of achieved what you've achieved, scientifically speaking, um, that we can speak to, uh, or they maybe are maybe are living, um, but also that have measured the kind of people that you've measured as well. And you've published only three hundred, maybe more now since that uh, little thing was written, three hundred papers and reviews on the scientific development of the human body can you give us a little bit of insight as to what your, your background and for me personally what got you into the scientific world yeah I, actually i probably started um similarly to some of the people on on the call now that I, you know it was running really that drew me to the science in the first place so um i certainly was into sport and into distance running before i started to envisage um studying the science behind it but it, it was it was it was training and really self-coaching that led me into the sort of scientific literature because I was thinking, well, how do I make myself faster, basically? What what is it that's preventing me from going faster? Um, and what can I do to get better? And that could be through through my training, through, you know, what are the limitations to my physiology? Are there particular things I ought to be working on? Are there things that I should do in terms of, you know, the shoes that I wear, the nutrition that I eat, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. So I was sort of... Um, just got into all of, all of the coaching literature and just laid my hands on as many sports physiology books and articles as I could and got fascinated by that and I got interested in the types of training programs that the elite athletes in the sort of well 60s 70s and 80s were doing and I, I wondered what it was that they were doing that that made them so good and I you know I just started to think about that stuff really so that all kind of began when I went to sort of secondary school I started to find an interest in sport generally but I found that athletics, cross country, and, and then you know track and field were things that I started to um, sh to shine at. Really, I, I was captain of the rugby team and things like that. But then I found that with running, uh, um, and the longer the longer the race was, the more eventually in time I I got to win by. So that kind of led me, and I enjoyed that kind of success. And the great thing about distance running, as everybody on the call will know, is that you can get better, and you can get better quite quickly as well. You only have to you know. You I, my training to begin with when I was about 14 I used to do two miles around the block as fast as I could every night <laughs> every time not not every time but you know you can certainly note some progress and then you carry that forward into your races as well so I thought this is this is great this is something that I can commit to work hard at and get you know due rewards from 
so so that's how I, you know, I started and I started to get quite successful at that and then I thought well maybe I want to um, do this as a career maybe I could be the Olympic champion or the world record holder or something like that. and uh, and as I said I was starting to get fascinated by the the things that underpinned athletic performance anyway so the obvious degree choice for me was sports science and I went off to the University of Brighton or Brighton Polytechnic as it was at that time uh, to study sports science and you know got really interested in in all of that the psychology the biomechanics the sociology but particularly the physiology and um, after three years of that well I started to get injured and ill like a lot of junior athletes do get when they move away from home and they're out of their normal training environment um, so my, my training started to get a bit interrupted and then over time I started to find that my sort of fixation my obsession with running started to become more and more to do with the science of, of running then I continued to do a PhD it was around that time that I first met Paula Radcliffe because there was no English at the time so elite athletes tended to be tested at university facilities um, and Bud Baldaro who was the nat- national event coach at that time and was sort of looking after Paula slightly she started to have a she had a bad performance and they didn't they wanted to know why but Baldaro knew my coach from Newport Harriers Mike Rowland and they knew that I was studying for a PhD in the physiology of distance running. So they suggested that I, you know, have a, have a look at Paula, see if there was anything that was wrong with her. <laughs> how, we, how could we make it better again? And, um, and it, so, so everything sort of fell into place. And I realised that people like Paula were a lot better than I was ever going to be. I still had this kind of dream that maybe I could be the world record holder, but sort of a couple of things came together. I, I was injured most of the time by then. I was fascinated by the science. We could see a new path there. And then the sort of the, the final nail in the coffin was meeting some Paula and thinking, you know what, I'd probably be better off helping people who are more talented than me than, than pursuing. That that sounds like a very similar journey to me, especially that last bit. <laughs> the realization of like, oh <laughs> I think I think I better just like sit here and watch you <laughs> and you and I'll, I'll I'll catch up eventually. Amazing. Well thank you for that. It's, it's it's fascinating for me to hear people's journey into this stuff because there's so many different paths in life that you kind of end up following what you want to do and some people get get like paula for example from a very young early age follow the athletics path and keep on going keep on going keep on going and hit the peaks of that but there are many peaks that you can hit and i think that's uh something that in a in a sort of parallel universe if paula wasn't put into running she went into finance for example would she still have the same physiological attributes or have they mostly come from her training career? Uh, no, I, th- I mean, I think she'd still have the potential for sure. Um, she just wouldn't have realised that. And, you know, I, I think there are probably other people walking the streets who are similarly talented to Paula Radcliffe or Elliot Kipchoge, but they never discover that. They're, they're never exposed to the opportunity. So I think the genetic potential is always there. Of course, um, it's all very well having the genetic potential, but you've also got to be able to have the psychological discipline to commit yourself to that sport for as long as it takes for that genetic potential to be realized. So it isn't just about that clearly. um, And it's about the training, but it's also the commitment to the training and remaining injury free if you possibly can. Um, But being in it for the long haul, I think you have to enjoy it. You have to be incredibly driven and you really have to, you know, commit yourself for not just weeks and months, but for years. And, you know, people like Paula and Elliot's case, if it's the marathon you're interested in, then 15 years probably, 15 to 20. Mm. So, you know, 
long time. And, and that's, and as we know, running is a really hard sport. It's not necessarily especially social. Um, you, you know, you, you often have to spend a bit of time on your own. You've got to train a lot. You've got to recover hard. You've got to get all your nutri- nutrition right. Sometimes training twice a day. You're fatigued constantly. That's a, that's a tough old game. It certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, I think that's where me as a, as a youngster didn't really like running that much is because it was so in your own head all the time and uh, you were tired and uh, all your friends were playing football when you were sort of asked to run <laughs> six miles um, on your own. Uh, it, it's for the long haul. It's quite a, you have to be, obsession is probably the wrong word, but you probably have to be a little bit obsessed about it in order to strive and peak and want to be the best that you can be, right? Really, I think you've got to have a goal as well, don't you? There's some, you, you have to have something that you're, that you want to achieve. Uh, obviously, that's different for everybody. And you have to make sacrifices. And, uh, but of course, when you know, hopefully you train towards that goal and you achieve that goal, it's an incredible, you feel very exalted by that whole process then. I mean, I, you, you talk about, you know, some of your mates playing football. I remember running around the streets of Chepstow on a <laughs> Friday or Saturday night and all my mates were boozing. In, <laughs> you know, my second six miler of the day or something like that. But I didn't, I actually didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. I wouldn't have swapped that for the lifestyle they were leading at that point. What? Something that... I don't... Yeah. <laughs> well, like you said, sacrifice is such a massive part of, uh, you, you can't do everything and if you want to be good at something or even you want to stop even even just progressing you don't want to be good you just have to progress to something you have to you have to let the balance happen somewhere some things have to drop in order for you to do more of this right absolutely and it, it, I mean, in your work as well isn't it actually you know if um if you want to write 300 papers or whatever it is or you know whatever the equivalent is in whichever other field you've got to you've got to put the hours in and um, and it's tough sometimes, you know. But uh, you know, the, there are, the good thing about sport, like well, athletics, as I was saying, is that the more you put into it up to a point, the more you'll get out of it. So I quite like that, you know. But it, it probably le- there are certain personalities that, that that appeals to more than others. And that's fair enough. Depends what your goals are, you know. And I, I suspect everybody on here isn't wanting to be the Olympic champion, or you know, you can run for fun as well, and that's great. And if, if you have, sometimes it's better to have that balance. But I certainly think that if you can add some running into your lifestyle, that's that's going to make you more productive than everything else that you do anyway. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, we, we talk a lot about the parallels between running and, and life and how overcoming your internal struggles with running, you actually have an idea of what to do with the external struggles in life. And actually becoming more confident about your abilities in the run actually starts to change how you think about yourself in the board meeting and all other stuff as well. Yeah, and obviously it gives you that time to think about what some of those other problems might be and you actually might find that those things get solved while you run. You know, it's, it's almost, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like sleep in that. If, <laughs> if let things process, I think. Absolutely. Well, just you mentioned Iliud and, uh, and Paula. I mean, what a, what a time for running back then with Paula wanting to chase down well i don't think he's actually wanting to chase down the world record she just kind of ended up in that run feeling like i think i can do this is that how it kind of came about well um yes and no i mean i, I think she knew she was in incredible shape so i had been working with her for quite a long time by then and we knew right from the get-go that while she was initially racing 1500 meters and 3000 meters that ultimately she was going to be a marathon runner there was no doubt about that her physiology every, everything pointed 
the, towards her being a marathon runner eventually. And, um, you know, and I, I sort of tracked her all the way through her career when she started running 5Ks and 10Ks and, you know, then eventually turned to the road. And, and then, obviously, she was going to make her marathon debut. And she, she used to like to be tested quite, quite soon before a race, like a week before, maybe something like that. Right. Yeah. Data were amazing. In fact, every time she came to the lab, she was a bit better than the time before. And she, I think she ran 218, didn't she, on her debut? And mm. she ran 218 on her debut because, you know, you do all the sums and you go, well, your lactate threshold's there, you know. And I knew her physiology so well that I could predict her performances over any distance you like, really, very accurately. I mean, the marathon for the first time was a bit of a step in the dark. But I, I did say I think you'll run about 218, which was going to be pretty amazing. It was going to be close to the world record anyway. And sure enough, she ran 218. And then six months later, I think that was, I've, I've lost track of where she raced now. <laughs> you know, I said you're even better than last time. It looks like you can run 217. And she ran 217. And then six months after that would, would have been um, London for the 2003. And I said, you run 216. So she, which would have been a world record. So she knew she was in that kind of shape. Fortunately, you know, that prediction rang true because the conditions were great and she felt great on the day and she got off to a good start. And she thought, I'm just going to throw, well, she always throws caution to the wind. <laughs> Everything clicked that day. It was the one occasion where she actually ran a little bit faster than I predicted, you know, only by 30 seconds or something, but still. Um, I wasn't all that surprised that she ran 215, 25. I'm more surprised that it's been... <laughs> been beaten although it did last for a long time um but yeah we, everything clicked that day but uh yeah i think that, i think that answered your question didn't it? I, I yeah absolutely well just to kind of like pin on that you mentioned that her physiology was all pointing in that direction can we kind of like have a little bit of a scientific overhaul now of like what that what the physiology is and it'll help people understand the definitions of those different things that you were looking at yeah so the sort of the holy trinity if you like are, are the uh, the vo2 max the running economy and the, the lactate threshold, which I'll sort of unpack a bit. So uh, VO2 max is your maximal oxygen uptake. And it's the highest rate by which you can take in air from uh, oxygen from the air that you breathe and transport it to your muscle cells where they, you know, that oxygen is used to generate energy. So in a way, the higher that value is, the better. But you can only run at your VO2 max for about eight minutes. So what we find is that the 3K runners and the 5K runners they tend to have the highest VO2 max values. What's more important for a marathon runner is to be able to operate at a high steady state oxygen uptake. You see what I mean? So you, know, you, you can only sustain your VO2 max for a short period of time because there's an anaerobic contribution as well. For the marathon runner, you need to know, you know, this is the highest VO2 that I can go at for a long, long period without getting fatigued. And that's determined more by, by the so-called lactate threshold. So if I put you on a treadmill and I start you at a really easy speed, let you go for a few minutes, take a sample of blood, measure lactate concentration, then get you back on the treadmill, you run slightly faster for another three minutes, and on we go, and we build up this profile. Now, for the first few speeds that I tested you at, your lactate's likely to be very, very low, very close to your resting concentration, so that you're in that kind of easy to steady running type of thing. But there'll be a particular speed, which is specific to each individual, above which that lactate starts to rise quite steeply. So that's, it. that's really your lactate threshold. And there's... Yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that because there's arguably two lactate thresholds and it's really the higher one that's more important. But essentially, there comes a speed um, above which you think, this is really tough. I'm not going to be able to keep this going for very long. 
and below which you're like, this is kind of not easy, but actually I can settle into a bit of a rhythm here. And it's it's that, that boundary between those two domains, really. And I think people perceive what that is when they're out running anyway, because you breathe um, disproportionately hard. That's reflecting lactation in your muscles and blood as well. So there are speeds where, you know, this, this I'm going to have to slow down because I'm not going to be able to keep this going for the, the distance. Yeah, so everybody, I think, appreciates where that is. So you need, you ideally need a really high VAT max, but you also need to be able to operate at a high fraction of that VAT max. And that latter bit is determined by your lactate threshold. And finally, having, um, being able to operate at a high oxygen uptake is all very well, but what's important is to be able to turn that into speed over the ground. And that is dictated in part by your running economy. So how efficiently can you use the oxygen and the energy that you're generating to make you try you know, go over the ground faster. And we find in runners that there's quite a bit of difference between how economical they are. So if, if everybody on this call was run at a particular speed and we measured their oxygen uptake, there could be a 20% difference in the amount of oxygen they're using to run at that speed. And that's partly to do with their physiology, but it's more to do with their biomechanics and their running technique. And you only have to look at people running along the, you know, along the road um, to notice that people run very, very differently. Some people are extremely economical and the less so. Now, as you can imagine, for the marathon, the more economical you are, the better. So the very best marathon runners and the best distance runners, you know, so, so the, the, the relative balance of those things changes as you go up through the distances. If you're a 5K runner, you want a really high VO2 max and the other bits are a bit less important. By the time you get to the marathon, it's nice to have a high VMTMS, but it's not the be-all and end-all. What's more important is to have a higher lactate threshold and really good running economy because most of the marathon is run at a very sub-maximal intensity. So, so you're looking for a runner that has all of those three things, really. But that's it in a nutshell, I suppose. Amazing. Thank you for, for summarising that. So uh, I, I think I'm, I remember mentioning to you that I'm, I'm studying the, the thanks to actually people like yourself getting more into the science. And I'm studying that exercise physiology masters now. Um, so I've got you to thank for all these deadlines I've got. <laughs> but uh, so we've got the lactate threshold, which for some universities, some people is uh, the first rise. And then there's the lactate turning point or maximum lactate steady state, or uh, there's a few other names that kind of come on for the second rise. When it's the lactate, when we look about the Holy Trinity, is it the second rise or the first rise that we, people are more conscious of? Or is it the bit in between? Um, it, it depends a bit on how good you are. <laughs> so I mean, if you're if you're a two hour marathon runner, then it's that it's really that second one, um, because actually the first one occurs at, at such a low intensity that you'd be able to run for hours at it. Mm. So it's really, if you can imagine those those three zones, right? So if you're below that first lactate threshold before lactate begins to rise above resting values, that's really really quite easy. We call that the easy zone, and you know. Um, you should be able to go along for quite a lot, a lot of hours in the end. You just you'll end up dehydrated, probably <laughs> your pain and whatever. But in, in terms of your other, otherwise, you'd be able to go unless you got damaged or you ran out of fuel. You you know, there's not really a physiological limit. If you exercise between, so it just rises above baseline levels, it goes up for a couple of speeds, and then it really you know shoots off. That middle zone is called the heavy domain. And your lactate will be elevated above resting levels, but after five or ten minutes, it will stabilise. So we have this, we're just about able to hold on to homeostasis, essentially. 
and and that's probably quite a good zone in which to train at least some of the time so that's kind of in the steady towards tempo area and then once you go above the lactate turn point which as you say is also known as the maximal steady state or the critical speed then um, there's going to be an obligatory anaerobic contribution which which adds on to the aerobic one and then your ability um, to continue is going to be severely limited and lactate will be rising in your muscles and blood and therefore pH in your muscles will be falling, phosphocreatine in your muscles will be all sorts of, you've lost homeostasis basically. Right. You are above your critical speed or above that second lactate threshold, lactate turn point, um, the more rapidly those things will just either, you know, um, accumulate or become depleted until they get to a relative maxima or minima and you become up you know, and then you simply can't continue. Amazing. Okay. It's good to know because we, we do a, uh, a threshold session on a Friday, but we're actually looking at changing the terminology to more of a tempo because it's this miscommunication from the coaching world, or miscommunication, but this, this difference in terminology between the coaching world and the science world, where a lot of coaches will term it as a threshold workout, where actually we want to probably be more at tempo pace. And that's that kind of middle, like medium zone or uh, moderate zone that we're talking about, right? Yeah, and you know, thresholds. There's all sorts of you know, it's, it's <laughs> lots of different thresholds, and people can mean different things by tempo as well. I mean, so a tempo run for a marathon run. If you're running at tempo, mar you know, if you're running at goal marathon, you're actually going to be in the heavy domain, and you can probably go for up to an hour if you're really fit, you know, at marathon speed. Um, but you can also think of tempo running as being slightly above that critical speed or lactate turn point, where you are deliberately exposing the, the body to high levels of lactate and you're kind of forcing an adaptation there so you know th that's basically a relatively high intensity run where you're, you're struggling you know you're breathing pretty hard most of that way but you might only do 20 minutes something like that um but when you're in that third zone that severe zone that's you can do a bit of you know continuous tempo towards the bottom end of that zone but typically it's used for interval training that could be you know Three, three or four minute reps or it could be one minute reps depending on exactly where you are within that amazing okay so if we got to talk about the training side of that, that sort of alluding to towards the end if someone wanted to improve their lactate profile let's keep it as a, as a an overall terminology what we're probably looking at doing is shifting that profile to the right isn't it we're looking at trying to look at maybe the same numbers but they happen later on in the higher speeds if someone wanted to do that would it be more of the uh, below threshold zones and wanting to be sort of at the point of being easy and comfortable or is it more towards the top end and it being a little bit harder and more severe that's the million dollar question really actually i think it's a combination of the two is what you want i think you need a reasonable um you know any any training program is going to have a certain amount of volume and then what you, and you have to choose the volume and the relative intensity. obviously the more you do the lower the intensity will be on balance as this kind of trade-off isn't there between the amount that you do and the speed that you can run at okay so for whatever it is you're training for you've got to think about how many miles do i need to do and how fast do they need to be and then you've got to kind of divvy it up accordingly so i think that you know if you're i think if you're doing a reasonably good volume of work below those thresholds in in the zone one and zone two for want of a better you know that's going to give you pretty good aerobic training stimulus and what will happen there is that you'll develop your mitochondria in your muscles you get more capillaries that kind of thing that'll be one stimulus that you could use and that 
um, should mean that you produce less lactate for any given speed or for any given metabolic rate. So that's, you know, remember when we're measuring lactate concentration in the blood, it's, it's a balance between the amount that's being produced and the amount that's being cleared. So if you can reduce the amount that's being cleared by equipping your muscles with more oxidated machinery, you know, you've got more mitochondria, you've got more oxidated enzymes within those mitochondria, then that's, that's great. So it means you can operate aerobically over a wider range. But I think also there may be some um, benefit for sure in doing these, you know, tempo runs where you're in that zone three or you're doing some uh, three or four minute, you know, reps with one or two minutes recovery where you are deliberately um, getting relatively high lactates because your, the body is a very plastic machine essentially and if you expose it to something that it's unfamiliar with or it doesn't like very much it will put things in place so that if you do that same thing again you won't find it quite so damaging or so difficult and and so i think if you can um if you can operate at high lactates for some reasonable periods of time then your body is likely to find ways by which it can reduce that it might be that there are ways by which it can improve your ability to clear that lactate so it's a combination and a balance between those two things, really. And it's the art of the coach to get the right proportions according to exactly what you're trying to achieve, what you're training for, the level of the athlete at that time. You've got to take in things like how much time they've got for this stuff. What are their personal preferences as well? So it's, you know, it's not, it's not just about the pure scientific prescription. It's about how it's going to land with the athlete too. Well, I think that's the, you just, I think you just beautifully labeled at the end there. There's an art to this. It's not just uh data crunching and numbers there was a recently in uh, news there was a, uh, a coach that said that anybody could become a coach if they can do good maths and uh, we just don't think that's true because there's so much nuance to the person that's absorbing this maths uh, that they can either be broken or perform better from it right yeah. you know the old phrase is there's more than one way to skin a cat right and i think some you can just get a bit overcomplicated about this one of the things that's really most important is just consistency, day-to-day -day consistency, monthly, you know, and, and if you really want to get the absolute maximum out of your um, your genetic potential, like we were saying, you have to do it year after year very consistently. So to, to a point, it matters less what you do than how often, you, you know, you can stick with it. And, it. and it's just making sure that you train. And, you know, you, and what you don't want is boom and bust. You don't want to be doing and I've suffered from this in the past, this is the trouble with being self-coached and too highly motivated, is you can train really, really hard um, all of the time. You're kind of on the brink of a breakdown all the time because you're knackered and, you know, you put yourself under a lot of stress. But if you can train for three or four weeks really hard and then you get injured or you get ill and you miss two or three weeks and then you have to resume again, that's no way to go forward. So you're, you're better off just making sure you're going at 90% of what you might be capable of, but being able to do that over the much longer term. So, yeah, so that's that's a really important point, I think. But people like, if you remember Seb Coe and Steve Ovette, mm. they probably trained in quite different ways. You know, Ovette was more of a follow the sort of Arthur Lydiard model, did a lot of long, steady miles through the winter, then hit a hill phase and that, then got into his track season. Seb was a kind of lower mileage most of the time, but in, included did like a Frank Orwell five-speed system where he was doing, you know, he never lost touch with basic speed. So they trained in really quite different ways, and yet they both ran 329. <laughs> it kind of didn't matter, did it, what they, what they did. And it would be interesting if you'd swapped their training around, you know, would they have both done the same thing again? So, 
you do have to build in um you know what what you want to do as well and and they'll but don't, but also don't fret too much about it that's what i used to do is get too obsessive about it and you know and, and just sit right in training programs constantly <laughs> you, yeah. you can start with it the most important thing is just to get out and do it love it it's a nice motto <laughs> someone's i think someone's coined that already um so with uh with with the other two that we haven't quite sort of discussed yet the vo2 max and the running economy so vo2 max has kind of been uh probably more famous in cycling uh, as a, like a a more popular household name but as you, as you mentioned it's uh part of this trinity that we use to help understand runners better if someone wanted to influence their vo2 max you mentioned that 5k running is probably a, a sport that needs that number to be as high as it can be because of the duration that has changed. But someone wanted to improve their VO2 max. How would they go about that? So, so VO2 max, it, it's all it's explained by the so-called Fick equation. So it's a product of how much oxygen you can shift from your, you know, so you've got your cardio, um, cardiopulmonary system, essentially, right? So you've taken in oxygen from the air, and this is like the central component where you're delivering oxygen to your muscles. So that depends on how much blood is being pumped from your heart per minute. Also depends a bit on the hemoglobin concentration of your blood. The heart. So, you know, there'll be a certain volume of oxygen that you're transporting to your periphery per minute. So that's the first part of it. Second part of it is that there's an arterial to venous oxygen difference. So your muscles need to be able to strip out that oxygen from the blood that comes to, to it and to use that for energy. Now, the, the evidence seems to suggest that if we were able to deliver more oxygen to our muscles, they'd actually be able to use it. So, so the limitation, if you like, appears to be more central. Um, now, that raises a bit of a problem because you can't, you know, your maximal heart rate is going to be limited. It's never more than, you know, depends how old you are, but it's typically around 200. And every, every year that you age, it gets a little bit lower. Now, fortunately, when you do a lot of endurance training, you can make the left ventricle of your heart bigger, so your stroke volume goes higher. So even though your heart rate is getting lower as your age, hopefully your stroke volume is at least maintaining its status quo. But, you know, you're going to struggle to deliver more oxygen to your muscles as you, as you get a bit older. But the more you can deliver, the better. I mentioned hemoglobin. The reason that people go altitude training is you can get a natural boost to your hemoglobin. You might get a, even as much as a 10% increase in hemoglobin concentration. So even with the same cardiac output, you'd be able to deliver more oxygen to your muscles. So that's good. Anyway, all leads me to say that probably if you want to develop your VO2 max, then training at near maximal heart rate and near maximal cardiac output is probably what you need to do. And you mentioned that it's sort of 3K, 5K pace. That's, that's kind of VO2 max pace. Now, rather than what you could do is run a 3K or a 5K every week, as hard as you could, and that could be your VO2 max stimulus. But there's probably a more productive way of doing it because you can only, you know, if you run it continuously, there's only a certain number of minutes where you could hold your maximal heart rate, maximal cardiac output, maximal VO2. So a better way to do it is to split that up. So rather than run 5K continuously, do five times 1K. But because you have these little bits of recovery in between, you could probably do six or seven, you know? So now you're running let's call it six, six by a K or six times three minutes or six times four, whatever it might be with a minute or two in between at 5K pace. And if you add up the number of minutes at which you, sp you spend, it's more than if you did the whole thing continuously. So 
I think that's probably the best way of doing it. And a standard, you know, session for most runners is five or six by a K, as you know. Hmm. But it gets to, or you could do, you know, again, more than one way to skin a cat. You could do 15 or 20 times a minute with a short recovery. And, and you wouldn't be hitting your maximal heart rate over the first few reps, but it's going to accumulate. And by the time you get towards the end of that session, you'll be there as well. So that's a specialist those are specialist interval type training sessions that specifically target VO2 max. But it's worth saying, because of that fifth equation, where it's to do with you know improving your stroke volume and your cardiac output, improving your ability, your muscles' ability to use the oxygen, if you're not very fit in the first place or you're just getting into to running for the first time, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Everything's going to improve for a while. It's only when you get a bit more advanced that you probably need to be a bit more precise about the training prescriptions to, to specifically target different physiological limitations amazing we actually did a workshop with uh professor paul larson who uh worked with uh michael bouchette to create sort of like the high intensity interval book um so we did a really nice piece with him and be able to categorize these different interval sessions as to potentially what they're going after but as you just said that may be at some point a little bit specialist and in our early stages just getting out there and doing something is going to change because the stimulus is going to be so broad um, that you're stressed by almost everything, in which case it's then going to start to develop and, and create adaption. Yeah, absolutely. All of these things overlap at the end of the day. You know, I think it's it's a little bit um, bit fictitious to think that only this improves VO2 max, only this improves threshold, only that, you know, if you did any one session, there'd be some in, some influence on all of those things. But if, or you know, so I think it does make sense to think about what we uh, what we how, what we might wish to program to target different things. But bear in mind that um, that they're not the only things. You, you know, there will be ways. But so for you know, if you do a, a lot of long slow running, there's probably going to be some influence on your VO2 max because you're probably increasing. You know, you pump, you, you you have so much blood flowing through your heart that there's probably an effect on on the um, left ventricular volume. So that's going to improve your central oxygen delivery, which is a component of your VOT max. So, you know, that may not be the most specific and the most, um, uh, you know, you might not get the most bang for your buck by doing all of that all of the time, but you, you'll probably have some influence. Now that's fascinating to hear because you've got even just getting out there and doing, especially in the early stages, things like blood volume changes pretty quick. Like at one, at the very early stages, your plasma increases, and then that starts to then change to then the amount of uh, what we would measure in hematocrit, like the, the, the amount of red blood cells and the other components to blood starts to then expand into that plasma, maybe 16 or whoever, however long after that. Um, but from the very first session of you getting out there and doing it, your body's already starting to make the changes, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, you're right. The plasma volume expansion is a very rapid um, effect. It's amazing. Okay, well, um, okay. So with the journey that Paula Radcliffe went on and Iliad, I think people have pinned Iliad as the marathon man because of his recent success. But he started off being a short distance racing against Mo Farah in the two miles in the mile. So is there a natural progression to these guys going through that speed component into then the long distance? Uh, I think that's what they tend to do, isn't it? I mean, Elliot, I, I'd need to, I think he's run something like three minutes 50 for a mile. <laughs> so, that's insane. 
when when you're running four minutes and 34 seconds per mile for a marathon that's like mind-blowing but of course when you've run three minutes 50 so for you know elliot running four four thirty four for your slow so i think it helps to kind of have that top end stuff um not everybody t- follows that same progression elliot and paula did of course and, and i think that does kind of guarantee doesn't guarantee but it gives you more more chance of having a long career and there doesn't seem to have been any harm to them to wait a bit longer before they ran their first marathons but not everybody does that. So Lalisa de Sisa, of course, who's um, an Ethiopian runner, world champion, um, someone who we also selected for breaking two, he was a marathon runner from the get-go, really, just wanted to be a marathon runner, like running long distances. And, of course, he's achieved a lot of success as well. But it just means he's run a lot of marathons, you know, <laughs> much else than half marathons. Um, so it's, it's tricky to know because on, on the one hand – you know, I, I mentioned that your VO2 max is likely to get a bit lower as you get a bit older, but that's only one of the factors that's important. We think that things like running economy continue to improve over many years. You know, your running form becomes um, even, you just become more efficient. You you iron out any kind of wasteful movements that you might have had, the more miles you accumulate over many, many years. So the, the falling VO2 max is compensated for by the improving running economy. But nobody's ever done the study. It would be impossible to do. Is it, is it better for someone with a lot of talent to start on, on the track, move to the roads over shorter distances and then become a marathon runner? Or might they have been better advised in the first place just to go straight to the marathon? It's, it's, who, who knows? But I think it's a pretty, it certainly it's worked well for Paula and Elliot and, and many others. But I think because the marathon is such a, a glamour event and certainly for the East Africans... There's money to be made in the marathons where there's much less so probably to, to do so on the track unless you really make it to uh, the very, very top level. So they're drawn to those events really early. Some of them make it, some of them don't. And yeah, arguably some of them would have been better advised to run shorter distances first before going to the marathon. You know, but people have other um, other, other motivations sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, very true, very true, and it's usually green. <laughs> um, so with the, uh, just to kind of round off that Holy Trinity that you were talking about, the running economy you just mentioned there, has it imp- it's very fluid. It can improve and uh, get worse based on training status and, and so on. What informs or what uh, what alludes to running economy? What are the, the factors that kind of add to it? Um. So there are some probably some physiological ones, and this might relate to muscle fiber type. So we know type one muscles or slow twitch muscles are a bit more efficient. So they use a bit less oxygen to produce the same amount of ATP compared to fast twitch or muscles or type two muscles. So if you've got a lot of type one muscle fibers, you may be a bit more efficient. There are some studies that indicate that might be the case. And if you do a lot of endurance training over a long period it's the possibility that any type 2 fibers that you did have might become converted to type 1 so that's one of the reasons why your endurance fitness can improve over over many years but you probably need quite a chronic stimulus for that to occur so there's some physiological things i think there are some anatomical factors as well um i think being being light um having long achilles tendons um, relatively long shank compared to your entire leg length. There's all those sorts of factors as well. And um, those are particularly the case, again, in the East African athletes. 
And then thirdly, there's just biomechanics, um, which is something I'm not not expert in. But you, you know, people just move differently. You only have to look at them on a treadmill or running along a track to know that. So, and I think your biomechanics changes again. You know, the, the more type, the more training you do at particular speeds, the more your move your your body will adjust to running at those speeds, and it will find a way to cut corners. Essentially, that's what this is. So over time, while you're running at the same speed, something that was really stressful in the past because you had a you know, not very efficient movement pattern um, becomes easier because you're using less oxygen because you've adapted your running style accordingly. But it's only by practice that you provide that stimulus to improve. The other thing to mention on running economy, and this isn't, you know, we mentioned the holy trinity, the three, but I actually think there's a fourth, which is that. Uh, and that's running economy kind of as well, but it's it's how that changes over time within an event. So when you think about people like um, Elliot Kipchoge, when we measured his physiology for breaking two, and we, we measured a whole host of other amazing athletes as well. Now, Elliot was, was phenomenal. Uh, he's phenomenal physiologically, he's phenomenal psychologically, but his, you know, there's a caveat to this because when we measured people for breaking two, they weren't necessarily in their very best condition. And my suspicion is that Elliot is probably has either, you know, a higher VAT max, a higher lactic threshold or better running economy than some other people. But at the time that we measured um, him, he wasn't necessarily, you know, mind blowingly better than some of his uh, compatriots and competitors. And yet he thrashes everybody when it comes to the major events. So there's some, I think there's a fourth dimension to this. And I think it's that when we measure running economy, we measure people in a fresh condition, basically. They come to the lab having had a day's rest and we put them on the treadmill and they've just, they've kind of warmed up and they've done a few stages before, but they're still relatively fresh. So what we're measuring is, is people's running economy in the first mile or two of Americans. You could think of it like that. And that's all very well. But what you also want to know is what is their running economy in the last two miles of a marathon? And I suspect that the very best people, just their, their economy doesn't deteriorate. The majority, for, for most of us, it gets worse. You only have to look at the people's running technique in the last two miles compared to the first two miles. And you <laughs> they're less economic. We were able to measure their oxygen uptake. I'm certain we'd be able to prove that that was the case. You look at Elliot, his running technique doesn't seem to change at all. And I reckon his running economy in mile 26 is as good as it was in mile one. Now, what it is that physiologically allows some people to preserve their running economy to, to essentially have better fatigue resistance and resilience, we don't really know. That's a big unanswered question. But I do think that's a fourth, um, fourth dimension of the physiological jigsaw, if you like, or, uh, or puzzle. Amazing. It's almost like that tissue tolerance, uh, ability to transmit force from the ground to the muscles seems to break people apart who are of, of a certain way and then actually doesn't seem to affect others um, in, in maybe people like Kichoge and, and Radcliffe and so on. With the um, the interesting thing about the biomechanics piece is Paul Radcliffe was not criticized personally, but a lot of coaches, a lot of uh, pundits were kind of looking at her and saying that she was looking very inefficient. Um, and that I think someone did try and change her head bob at one point, uh, which actually made it, made it worse for her. But you measured her and she turned out to be incredibly efficient. So yeah, yeah. technique wise, is it, is it just a piece of the puzzle and there's a surrounding caveat conversation around that, or is it quite an integral piece of the puzzle? I think it's very important, but I think what it, what that 
uh, alludes to is that when you when you look at people run you you don't necessarily know how efficient they are so they might not I, you know Zatapak was probably the untidiest runner of all time wasn't he and yet he was and he was probably therefore quite economical <laughs> i don't think people were measuring economy on athletes in those days which is unfortunate now paula was one of the, one of the most economical runners ever assessed and and that was during you know and she used to bob her head on the treadmill as well and yet it didn't change the oxygen cost there was something that her head was doing that was balancing something else presumably <laughs> and we have to be careful that we don't look at someone and go and make a make a judgment call that we think just because they look uneconomical that they actually are uneconomical you need to measure it to be sure and i think that um making a change to somebody's technique could be counterproductive because you don't know what else you know they've obviously developed that particular trait as a compensation or you know to balance out something else so if you if you adjust that there are likely to be other possibly unwanted compensations that could make matters worse so but if you look you know if you watch paula run and you look at everything else it's really really very good so mm. she just uh, this and the unfortunate thing about it was that her competitors would know oh she's a bit knackered now <laughs> it would psychological philip but i don't think her economy was um was especially badly badly affected so working with these guys you obviously get to know them in a slightly different context to what we get to know them is there anything different about them from a personality point of view or even like what kind of what kind of person are they on the treadmill, off the treadmill? Any quirks they've got? Well, they're, they're just, they're brilliant. They're stars. You know, I'm, um, I've had the good fortune to meet, you know, they say never meet your heroes. I, I think I've met all of mine and I've never been disappointed. And people like Paula and Elliot, just, they just have a star quality, but they kind of always had it as well. You know, I met Paula a long time before she became famous and there was something about her even then. There's, there is... There's, there's something about the the grace that they have, the the good health, you know, the supreme health, the the honesty, the integrity of, of it all. It's really hard to kind of describe. Um, but yeah, the, you know, I feel very um, very privileged to have you know worked with them as closely as I do, and to call them friends. You know, it's it's been a I couldn't have asked for something if I wasn't going to do it myself. This, you know, to have. Um, to have helped other people to achieve some things, even if it's only in a tiny way, has been great. Just just to to work with them. I mean, I think that if you wanted to make sort of compare and contrast, then Paula was probably is probably a bit more intense. And when she was on the treadmill, she was very very driven. She was always very you know, and she pushed herself harder on a treadmill test than I've known anybody else do. So you know, when when you're measuring people, you you get to you, you do enough of these things to think this person's got about one minute left and then you kind of right let's make let's make sure we don't miss anything make sure we record in heart rate get ready to get that final lactate is the oxygen is everything being measured properly no this is the fine you know because we want to make sure that we've got the vo2 max and uh, and i'd be primed and i'd get everybody else primed for measuring all in that last minute and invariably <laughs> she would go she'd give the sick because you got the max she'd give the signal one i want to i want to try another minute I mean, no way you're going to do another minute but she probably she would do another minute and then she'd go she'd probably only do 10 seconds and she was absolutely you know and it was a bit scary actually because she was of course everybody's techniques gets a bit ragged towards the end Paula's maybe especially so she's running at fast speeds now maybe 21 kilometers per hour on a treadmill you know of course you've got the crash mat at the back but you're like please please don't 
feet don't fall off. It was <laughs> especially a week before a race as well. <laughs> then she would finally stop, and within about two seconds, she'd go, "I could have gone on." And you're like, "No, you couldn't." <laughs> <laughs> Ten seconds. My measurements would be exactly the same. Chill, you know. So, so she was like that. Um, Elliot is is really quite as you've seen on the interviews, he's really calm, really philosophical. Um, he, he's, he, he listens to you when you're having a conversation with Elliot. He gives you his full attention. And that's kind of, that's, that's interesting because not many people do that, I think. So he, he's a very special person. They're both, both very special in different ways. Amazing. Well, what, again, like was it, what a, what a time uh, to be witnessing these people from the first hand. Um, so if we take in the, the greats, uh, these these people who get the world records are not just like the best at that point. They're the best of all time since data collection happened on those distances. So there's a difference between what's good and great. And those who are racing in the marathons and winning them now might not, might not break a world record. What's the difference between a world record holder and someone who's just going out and winning a marathon? Is it is it just an ability to combine these three or four things at the maximum capacities possible, not like you just said, not uh, not forgetting the psychological piece. Is it is it a combination of all those things, or is it a set parameter? Of they all had this particular value that was to speak of. No, they they didn't all have um, have the have, There's no one specific thing, but it is all of those bits combined. Yeah. So with the break into Right, let's give, give you a nice example, but we published some of the data from that um, earlier this year, I think in February's edition of um, Journal of Applied Physiology. And when you you look at, I think that we've got 16 or 17 runners there, and if you correlate their VO2 max with their best marathon times, there's no relationship. If you correlate their running economy alone to their best marathon time, there's no relationship. Same with the lactate threshold, same with a bunch of things. But when you combine all three of those, you get a really nice, almost perfectly linear correlation with best marathon time. So, you know, it, it is about all of those things. It's about what is what is the highest oxygen uptake you can sustain for long periods. That can't be higher than the VO2 max, so that's where the VO2 max comes in. Then you've got your lactate threshold, which dictates the VO2 you can run at. Then you've got the running economy, which turns that into speed over the ground. So it's you, you can actually end up with you know, a 159 uh, marathon or a 215 as you want with a variety of different combinations of those three numbers and um and people do have different combinations and they can achieve 202s or 203s whatever it is so um yeah it's, it's all of that stuff but i th i think the other the other the other thing is you've got to have the talent in the first place don't get me wrong but you also have to have the bravery to go for it to believe that it's possible that the 20257 in Elliot's case isn't, you know, that, that can be smashed and, and not limit yourself to think, because I think that's what we do. We think, well, the world record is such and such. I'll see if I, you know, I might be able to take a second or two off that. And Elliot's like, <laughs> doesn't care about what the current is. It's just about, you know, and I, and I do believe, um, so his thing about no human is limited. I, I think he doesn't limit his mind in terms what he might be able to achieve. I think that's what he's kind of taught us. And I do think ultimately, you know, everybody has a physiological limit in the end, 
you have to otherwise you know he'd be running 90 minutes with that so there's <laughs> but i think we can all go a bit faster i think we kind of automatically constrain um what our achievement might be and he in particular didn't do that and i think paula was kind of dismissive of you know she just would run as hard as she could for as long as she could and it was quite simple in that regard and that's what she did in london in 2003 but that takes a lot of guts to do that. I, I vividly remember, because I knew she was in great shape, and I vividly remember the commentary on that day. And, uh, you know, Brendan Foster and uh, Dave Coleman, I think it would have been, just, and this is, you know, just saying this is absurd. She's surely going to blow up because she'd gone through halfway in some ridiculous time that nobody had ever done before. But rather than slow, she actually got faster and faster and faster as that race went on. And, uh, you know, you, sometimes you don't know what you're capable of until you go for it. And, the physiology is all good, I think, but yeah, you have to, it's a guide rather than a, an absolute. Amazing. Well, what's it, what's interesting to uh, us, obviously there's the, the guiding North stars of these champions and everything else as a human being, are there minimums that we should be able to do? So there's a maximum, the limits of our human potential, but what's the, what's the, what should we be able to do? Should everyone be able to do a marathon or should everyone have a certain capacity to do a certain distance of race? Because some people say, oh, I'm not a runner or I'm just not fit. And they kind of leave it there, like you said, like a self-sustaining parameter, like I'm not fit. But we know that's not true. How fit could everybody be? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. You've stumped me finally. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I think everybody can do a bit more than they think, no matter what level you're at. I think that things like the couch to 5K are quite good, aren't they? Because so, people would all, would continue to make that excuse otherwise. So, but you, you just don't know where people what where people are coming from. You know what they they might have genuine limitations. So, so for some, walking a mile might be a target. For others, it'll be running 5K. Um, but I think we always have to challenge ourselves. It's good to come out of the comfort zone a bit. Absolutely. Well, and we've uh, just created some training programs with some of the uh, like the audio runs and a little bit education pieces in there, some podcasts listened to to help them understand their bodies better, to try and hopefully change their opinions around themselves and their relationship with running. Because I know from a young age, my relationship with running was quite poor because uh, it was used as a punishment more than anything else. Oh, you're late, go run laps. Uh, or you forgot your kit go outside and run it in your, in your PJ, in your, uh, in your tighty whities. Um, so it was, uh, it was a, the relationship with sport was quite poor early on, um, which we know has a massive impact into later life as well. Uh, so a couple of things, a lot of, we've kind of like maximizing your time now uh, with regards to this, but I think just to round this off with the last question for me is, and then we'll open up to up to the floor if anyone else wants to ask any questions is, Knowing everything that you know now and measuring the kind of things that you've measured and worked with the people that you've worked with, what would you have, what would you do differently about your own running career back when you were performing? Because you've got a, a current record already. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I've got, um, I've actually got two records. I've got the um, uh, British or UK age 16 10K record, which was uh, 3013. And the age seventeen half marathon UK record, which is sixty six fifty five, but they still stand. They, they were nineteen eighty seven, so they've um, they've stood about 30, 34 years, which I'm you know, thanked by really. But I'm, I'm 
they, <laughs> that's all about them. I hope they never get beaten. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, they, they've they stood the test of time. So what would I do differently? Um, in a way, um, I wasn't constrained by anything back then. I'd not been, you know, I was I was 16, 17, so I'd never been measured. I had Steve Jones um, in my running club, who at that time was the world record holder for the marathon. And, you know, he, he was a no easy miles kind of a guy. And, you know, he, he would blast, blast off high because he was like, you never know what your limits are until you really, really push yourself. And I don't remember much about those races. I know that the, 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 the half marathon was in Stroud and it was a blistering hot day. And if I'd had a scientific head on, I'd have been like, you're not going to run very fast today. Just kind of take it easy kind of thing. Um, but I, I did sometimes not knowing everything is kind of helpful, having the, that kind of innocence or naivety. And maybe I wouldn't have run as fast as I had if I knew more. <laughs> so... Naivety is bliss. I think the other thing is I, I used to like training hard. Um, I was a bit kind of masochistic about it, really. And I, and I did suffer. It was, it was almost like sabotage my own performances another time because I'd go into races too. But I enjoy training. I've got no doubt that I trained harder than anybody else. And that's probably why I ended up running fast times. Um, but, of course, I didn't make it as a senior athlete. And I probably trained too hard too early. Um, I don't have any regrets, don't get me wrong, but I think um, I need to train quite so hard, quite so much. And if I'd taken the, the Elliot Kipchoge approach, I might, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't have run on that fast, but I could have, I do think I could have gone to an Olympics probably. Um, I, you know, when, I wasn't as good as Steve Jones, but I think I was probably as good as a guy called Steve Brace, who ran about 2.11. So I could have been around there, but yeah, I didn't, that's not, that's not really what motivated me anyway. I'm glad that things panned out the way they did, really. And I've sort of found my niche. But actually, this the consistency thing. Is I'd go back to that and say, you don't need to be quite so obsessive, quite so fixated, quite so, you know, 24-7, thinking about the next training session, planning the next training session. Be a bit more organic about it. Listen to your body more, all of this, basically. <laughs> um, take it easy sometimes when you don't feel good. Um, you don't need to go eyeballs out in every every interval session. You can just hold a little bit back for, for the key races. Go into races fresh, not tired, all of that stuff. So, yeah, that's probably probably what I've learned. And, and um, it's, you know, it's psychologically a tough, a tough sport. It's not just in the race where you have to be strong and you have to have a bit of pain tolerance and whatever. You, it's anxiety-inducing as well. You know, you've got to handle your nerves going into the race. But it's a hard games going back to what we said right at the very beginning that you want to be playing for a long long time and you can burn yourself out if you're if you train too hard and you think too much about it i would actually say you know don't be so scientific don't think so much about it be a bit more organic enjoy your running and get out there consistently that's a nice motto we'll have we'll have that thank you very much <laughs> uh guys if if there's anyone who would like to ask any particular questions i know we've got people who are new to uh, us and so um, feel free just to uh, to un unmute yourself and introduce yourself and then uh, ask away. I'll go first if that's all right. Go for it. Uh, hey, Andrew, my name's Reese. Um, so my question is uh, kind of surrounding some of the points you already mentioned and to to go on from it. So you mentioned some really interesting points around um, obviously physiological markers, which is obviously your realm. 
And also you touched on like self-limiting beliefs as well, which I would suppose goes more into the psychological realm. Um, how much work do you do with psychologists to look at your data and then compare it to the data that they're capturing to try and work out a way you can incrementally improve the elite athletes' performances that you're working on? Yeah, I don't do any anything psychologist myself. I kind of see my I do the physiology. Um, if the athletes that I work with want to work with psychologists, well, fine. And there could be a multidisciplinary in environments where that. Um, but most of them don't have psychology. I think it's partly because they, I don't think they probably need them because they they work without them. They all do genetic. You either have that. Now, obviously, there are certain individuals who might have specific issues with their performance. They get too anxious, or you know, there's something. And absolutely, a psychologist can help those individuals to overcome whatever it is that's limiting them psychologically. But I think with the um, with some of these top runners, it's almost a bit of an insult to them to say, um, you know, again, again, when you listen to commentary on some of the major marathons, it, this, this used to be the case. There'd be a group of runners left with you know, two miles to go and you get someone say, oh, it's who wants to win it the most now? And, and I think that's a bit of an insult because they all really want to win it the most. But one of them is going to run out of glycogen sooner than the other. You know? So I think there are still some major physiological limitations at that point in time. The same on the start line of, a, of an Olympic final. They all want to do their very best and they've all had the psychology to get them in that position in the first place. So I'm not saying that psychology isn't really important, but I do because it is. And, and the, the proof that it is, is that they've all got those psychological traits in the first place. Um, arguably, you know, the, the belief thing is an interesting one, though, because I think when we were selecting the athletes for breaking two, many of them were delighted. The ones that we selected were delighted to have been selected. And, you know, a few of them, did, of, the, of the 17 that we tested, a few of them are probably didn't think it was possible, right? A few of them thought, hmm, it might, might be possible. And there was, thought, it is possible and it's going to be me that does it. So, so there's that, you know. So it's, a, it's more to do with the, the constraint that a person places on themselves. So you do need to have a kind of an open mind to what you can accomplish. But that said... Don't be ridiculous about it <laughs> either and overshoot. You know, I think do it incrementally because if you think you're going to be the person that runs 155 for the marathon and then you're not, you know, you're going to be disappointed by that. But, it, you know, it's a, it's a ludicrous goal, really, at least for me, I think, for all of us on the call. I've got uh, Lee asking a question here. So he's saying, hi, Andrew. Oh, I'll just disappeared before i said it uh andrew um out of a cross-country event right now so sig uh single isn't great oh he's been running in a cross-country event as, as we've been talking uh, interested to know if the elite runners cross train and what sort of stuff and how often um not re not really i think unless unless they've um had a bit of an injury or they're coming back from something they might supplement their their running you know, sometimes they'll do water running or that they can have these treadmills now that, in, you know, add some, some, what do you call it? So you, you basically, at the Alter G treadmill, so you're running mm -hmm. at a lower load. Um, I've seen athletes at altitude, um, when they first get their used bikes, just to get a bit of an aerobic training stimulus without the, the load. Um, but they don't do much. And, and if you mean by cross-training things like weight training, then Paula certainly incorporated that a couple of times per week. And there's some evidence that 
certain plyometric training, certain types of strength training can be beneficial for, for running economy. So if he will do that, Elliot and his group, and I don't know any East Africans that do much of it. So what Elliot will do is after he's run a uh, major marathon, he'll run easy or just have, just rest for a little while. And then when they start to rebuild again, they start to do some uh, kind of stretching type activities and a bit of circuit training, some, some light muscular endurance type weight training. But when they go into camp and train specifically for the marathons, they do nothing but run. So they don't do any gym training, you know, and strength and conditioning people would go, well, ooh, you know, what if they did that as well? Surely they'd be even faster. <laughs> I think it would be a, a brave person to um, do what they're doing at the moment and make them do less running and a bit of weights um, or to add weights to an already demanding training program. So, so they don't do it. And I'm not therefore advocating that none of us should. I think weight training can have some, some benefits. And I think that... Uh, potentially, you know, um, depends how serious you are about about your your running. Um, specificity is really important, but if you're interested in just general fitness, then absolutely supplement your running with with some swimming or some cycling or some long walks or whatever it is that you enjoy. Feel free. I mean, well, I think that's a nice point that, especially these guys who are East Africans are probably more consistently hitting like the 100 160 mile weeks that you can be in uh i think there's the western side it was more uh 80 to 90 but harder miles and uh, there's lots of philosophies bouncing backwards and forwards but to put that in time that's 12 hours potentially to 16 hours of running per week that's a lot of time on your feet a lot of energy demand and then where you spend that energy becomes really important. And if you're looking at spending it or getting good at running, you probably should be spending a lot of it on the running and saving as much of it as possible to get back on the run again, right? I agree. And I think um, I, while I, I think that some, some strength training, for example, might be beneficial, if you just add it, if you supplement it to a running program, you have to bear in mind, okay, you, you're not running during that period, but it's still time where you're not recovering from your running. And it's adding an extra load, you know, and you have to take that into account. And you can feel more tired when you run and you can feel stiff and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it does have some potential disadvantages that you have to bear in mind when you're constructing the entire program. I think it's nice for uh, people to imagine that, that that run is stressful as much as everything else. Anything that lifts your heart rate, technically speaking, is a stress. Um, so if, you, if you're going and uh, jumping in the weight room, if you're quite early on in your journey with running, actually running can be a lot of body weight absorbed into the floor. You may need to be a little bit stronger and you may need to sort of work on that strength aspect. But uh, there's that yeah. decision, that crossroads <laughs> that sometimes happens. Well, the, the, when the Kenyans are running, uh, actually the, the, the tracks and trails that they go over are quite often quite hilly and it's often cross country. And it's very rough. It's not very, they're not running on smooth, flat roads. They're running up and down hills on cambers and all sorts of stuff. They've got incredibly muscular feet, lower limbs, interestingly. And they, they walk about a lot barefoot as well. But the, it's surprisingly wet in Kenya some of the time. And they're on the, you know, the, the mud is like almost like a red clay, sticks to the bottom of the shoes. And you see, so you're running uphill with, the, with an extra kilo probably on each foot. And that's that maybe as much strength training as they need. Yeah, that's where the ankle weights come out now. <laughs> Love it. Okay, any more questions, guys? Any more questions? 
even you can there's a little raise your hand app uh, on the app if you fancy to let us know if you want to ask something or if you're busy typing away before we cut off. Can I quickly ask, is there, have you seen any impact or change in the environment in which you test them in to the, um, your predicted markers compared to what they actually achieve in terms of temperature and also in terms of footwear as well? Well, so so we air condition the lab. So we try and make the lab as consistent as possible. So we try and make everything the same. So, um, so, so that kind of compensates for that part of the question. Also, the other thing that we set the treadmill gradient to 1% to make sure that what we're measuring in the lab is equivalent to the energy cost of running outdoors. There's all of that. Shoes do make a difference. And we've just had a paper accepted in uh, MedSize Sports and Exercise, that journal, um, where we're looking at a, a prototype of a uh, highly cushioned running shoe that and we did a study where you know you, you test people with and without that shoe and you get a you get a improvement in running economy and you get a rightward shift in the lactate threshold so again what you want to do if you want to make a of the best time for whatever it is then you try to make the situation as realistic as possible and so you'd want them running in the in the shoe in which they intend to race when you test them that would make it um you know a better translation but yeah you have to bear that in mind and the shoes are is obviously a, a pretty big deal you know everybody wears them now for very good reason oh i think we can have we just got an exclusive there <laughs> but no, i think uh we could have a whole way another podcast on the on the footwear conversation because it's become well certainly in the last five years it's become a huge part of of the performance conversation where it never really was before shoes were never really the thing is like what feels comfortable what can get you to the end of the marathon comfortably but now it's almost like choosing a bike and how much it's going to weigh what the kind of the size of the cranks are it's going to influence performance now the shoes have become the same conversation of what thickness is the carbon plate how what the angle of carbon plate is and is that actually going to affect anything so it's a very interesting time for running to be because I know some people are really against the footwear conversation and they're like, it's not the human versus the human anymore. It's now the technology versus the human and the other technology. Um, but innovation happens in every sport. And so it just shapes the other, it just it challenges the other companies to also try and innovate and f find out what's possible. Right. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the sh okay. There's been, you know, no pun intended, a step change in the latest round of football. But um, shoes have been getting better for decades. You know, the shoes that we were wearing in the in the 80s and 90s were better than they were wearing in the 50s and 60s. And people have moved from grass tracks and gravel tracks to, to the tarp. All of that stuff has changed over the years. So, so there have been technological influences on running performance, for sure. Um, I don't think you can keep it out. You know, it's probably my record's going to be beat be by people wearing these shoes, and it'll serve me right, won't it, in the end? But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, everybody's focused on the performance because it's people, people like me who didn't want didn't want their records beaten because it is more difficult to compare times, you know, over the over the generations. But the it's not so much the carbon plate, but the the shoes that are being made now are a so light but so very well cushioned that actually there's going to be an application there in the general public sooner or later. Now they're quite expensive at the moment, but the foam is going to get cheaper, and eventually the price will come down. And if you want people to get out and enjoy running, you know, we talked about the people who aren't motivated at the moment should do more. But some, some of these people try, you know, they start, but then they feel sore and they feel damaged and they don't enjoy it. You put them in a pair of these new shoes 
and they'll come back feeling probably pretty fresh and they'll want to do it again the next day. So there's probably a big public health, you know, people forget about this, but actually I think that those new shoes could actually be really beneficial to human health in the longer term. And that's probably a much bigger and more important question than whether somebody runs a minute quicker in the marathon than they could, would have done without that shoe. Well, that's a conversation that we haven't probably heard much of before. So thank you for highlighting that, that actually the reason why people fall out of love with running, especially is because they just feel like they can't do it or it hurts them. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Well, I think that's kind of where Nike came from, wasn't it? Originally it was Nike was on looking at the, uh, the waffle shoe from uh, then decreasing injury rates, it feeling better, that feeling encouraging more performance and then started getting more records because of people training more often. Um, so it's kind of just in keeping with the ethos of do it more, get better. Yeah, just just another little snippet on the shoe is that I think it's not, I mean, the shoe is is better acutely. So, um, you know, you, you just compare people in a new shoe versus an old shoe and the, their economy is actually automatically a little bit better. I also suspect that towards the end of a marathon where you're normally really damaged and your legs are feeling terrible, that you're probably better preserved, especially in the alpha fly compared to say the, the vapor fly. You know, I think the vapor fly and the next percent talking just Nike shoes, mm. probably ju just as good, you know, at 5k. But when you come to the marathon, the alpha fly probably starts to come into its own over those last few miles by preserving your form in the face of fatigue and damage. Um, but what I was going to say is that it's not just acute all the, because they can afford it and they get all their shoes given to them, but the top train in these shoes all of the time as well so it means that they not only are they running faster when they train but they actually recover faster they they feel fresher they're able to do more miles more quickly so some of this some of the effect of the shoe in terms of what we see in in, in the better performances isn't just because they've worn the shoe on the day it's because they've trained in that shoe for several months and they're fitter actually going into it because they've been able to do more miles more quickly because they're less damaged Fascinating. Well, what a, what a nice way to end on picky, picky kit wisely now for, <laughs> if you're wanting to up the limits, but there's a, like the consistency is therefore the most important thing and whatever helps you be more consistent, therefore is going to breed more results. So that can be a psychological influence, could be a, a, a kit influence. It could be a programming influence, whatever helps you get out there and starts to uh, change your body. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I don't want to keep you all day. Uh, incredibly interesting, Laura mentions. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work over the years. Um, it's inspired me to take on that scientific career because I am also not going to be a world record holder <laughs> and so therefore want to measure them. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what evidence I can collect and also what you collect. Anything exciting you guys are working on right now, scientifically? Uh, well, we're we're interested in in uh, what is it that determines fatigue resistance and resilience, and you know does does say an alpha fly help you in the latter end of a race better than a standard that kind of stuff. I think that fourth dimension is really important. Of course, the other line of work that I do is um, dietary nitrate and beetroot juice. So we're doing a lot of muscle biopsies, looking at um, things to do with that mus muscle and rather than blood and nitrate. Well, we're tuning in for our next seven-hour workshop on on the on the physiology of of nutrition as well. Uh, but myself now, again, I've been injured for a while, but I'm on on the comeback trail, and I'm going to do. I've got to do five and a half miles, so I'll do that before I go off for a Sunday lunch. 
Oh, I love it. Love it. Oh, well, if you ever join us for a virtual run sometime, you're more than welcome. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really appreciate your time. And uh, uh, these guys, I can see from their faces in the comments, they're really appreciative as well. So thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Cheers. Have a good one. Bye. All right, Andrew, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in, guys. Really appreciate your time. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview and hopefully we'll be able to get other people just like Andrew on this members-only podcast so you can listen in as you run. Thank you so much for your support as always and tune in for another interview with someone soon.